This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking. This is the second part of our look at Helmut and Marion Lammers' book, Millaps, Military Mind Control and Alien Abduction. If you haven't listened to part one yet, go back and do that. We'll still be here when you're done. If you choose to plow ahead without listening to the first part, I'm not going to stop you, but neither am I going to take any responsibility for any confusion on your part. So this is where we left off. In late 1996, Austrian physicist and UFO researcher Helmut Lammer published an article in the MUFON Journal exploring the possibility that some alien abduction experiences were the result of military and intelligence agency mind control experimentation. The article generated debate between those who were willing to consider Lammer's position and those who were not. And we're picking up the story in November 1997. In the November 1997 edition of the MUFON Journal, Lammer published a follow-up article entitled More Findings of Project Millab, Looking Behind the Alien Military Abduction Agenda. Lammer begins the article by giving readers an update on what's happened since his initial 1996 piece. Since I published my preliminary findings of alleged alien abductees who experienced possible kidnappings by special military intelligence units, I received new information, especially from North American abductees and abduction researchers. Most of this information has not been previously published. The responses I received after the first article was published show that there are more alleged alien abductees who have experienced unwanted human military contacts, MILABs, during their lives. In August 1997, I published an overview of the study, co-authored by my wife, in a comprehensive book entitled Covert Operations. This is one of those things that has led to some confusion, at least for me. The subtitle of this book, Covert Operations, was Military Involvement in UFO Abductions. And as close as I can figure out, this is an earlier German-language version of the book that would become Millab's Military Mind Control and Alien Abduction. He goes on to recap the findings from his first article and says that he believes there are three questions that open-minded researchers will want to explore after reading his update on the Millab's research. 1. Is it possible that secret human experiments or covert operations are occurring in Western democracies? 2. What is the human agenda which seems to be involved in the alien abduction phenomenon, and what is the purpose of Millab's military abductions of abductees? 3. Is there a military interest in developing brain implants, virtual reality biochips, holographic image projection, cloaking devices, and mind-altering weapons? Despite the fact that question two seems to just go ahead and assume the answer to question one is yes, these are some pretty good questions. If you are sort of invested in the military abduction paradigm that Lammer has laid out, and he argues at the end of this introduction, that the existence of these technologies would, quote, support the hypothesis that such secret experiments could occur on humans, and these experiments are being hidden from Congress and the public by placing the funding inside secret or black budgets, end quote. 
We then get to the new material that Lammer has for his MUFON readers, and the first section is headed Documented History of Secret Mind and Behavior Control Experiments, and he puts his cards on the table pretty quickly and pretty resolutely. Everyone who refuses to believe that secret experiments and covert operations have been performed on people, including children, should look at the documented history of military intelligence radiation experiments, as well as mind and behavior control experiments, which are now known to the public. In addition to the United States and Canada, the British press reported that even the Ministry of Defense has carried out secret radiation experiments on humans during the last 40 years. So this is an argument that I don't necessarily like. I get it. I I don't necessarily like, though, the, I don't know if assumption is the correct word, but the presumption, maybe, that because undisclosed secret horrible experiments have taken place in the past, that the answer to the abduction question must be secret, horrible, horrific experiments. I'm not saying it's not possible, but I'm, I'm just saying it's... It's not necessarily a syllogism, I guess, if I'm using the word syllogism correctly, which I might not be. One of the things I liked about this little bit here was that, you know, in addition to the U.S. and Canada, even the British Ministry of Defense, why the emphasis on even the Ministry of Defense? I mean, are we somehow surprised that the British have done things that are as reprehensible as the Americans and Canadians have done? Does Lammer here exhibit some kind of European sensibility that, oh my gosh, we're not nearly as bad as those colonials over in the Western Hemisphere, but even the British have done things like this. Lammer goes through a number of things that in 2022 are fairly well known by people who pay attention to things like this, but in 1997 were a little newer. Um, They hadn't been, some of them hadn't been declassified for as long. So radiation experiments, nerve gas experiments, LSD, and biological agent experiments. Lammer points out that the people on whom these experiments were conducted were prisoners, soldiers, uh, people with mental and physical disabilities, hospital patients with terminal illnesses, pregnant women, often poor, um, which we, we know. We know that, and it's it's awful. He um, doesn't pull any punches. He refers to these experiments as Nazi-like. Uh, he name drops one of the significant names in this whole sorry history, Dr. Ewan Cameron um, at McGill University, which was funded by the CIA, or these experiments were funded by the CIA. I'm not saying McGill was completely funded by the CIA. Talks about electroconvulsive therapy, all sorts of things in the United States, Canada, and Great Britain that, you know, sort of went on during the 40s through you know, into into the 80s in some cases. He also describes a 1997 video sort of set of or set of video depositions or testimony sent to President Clinton by an organization called the Advocacy Committee for Human Experimentation Survivors hyphen mind control. And th- this was sort of horrific testimony from people who believed themselves to be victims of government mind control experiments, children and adults. Um, Lammer admits that, uh, quote, their victims do not report alleged alien UFO contacts like Milab victims report, but some of the Milab experiences also fit the pattern of abuse described by alleged mind control victims. So 
Lammer is being very upfront about the fact that, no, this videotape full of testimony from mind control experimentation victims does not describe a bunch of abduction scenarios. But there are similarities in the pattern of abuse that both groups of victims have experienced. And then in the next section, he moves on to address a possible purpose of the mill apps. And he acknowledges that the issue might be more complex than he believed at first. And he believes that there are possibly three different groups with differing agendas that are behind the military abduction phenomenon. It seems to me that the first group is interested in mind and behavior control experiments. I found indications of sensory deprivation experiments, liquid breathing experiments, experiments on electromagnetic stimulation of the temporal lobes, brain research, and implant research. So this group is the straight-up, old-fashioned, what you think of when you think of mind control. We are going to mess with your brain. We're going to mess with the biological things in your head, psychological, physical, whatever, and we are going to figure out how to control or manipulate or, you know, get what we want from your brain. There's a second group and their objectives might be a little different. A second group seems to be interested in biological or genetic research. Some Milab victims recall seeing humans in tubes filled with liquid and genetically altered animals in cages during their alleged kidnappings inside military underground facilities. It should be noted that alien abductees without military contacts also remember similar scenarios inside UFOs or alleged alien crafts. So this one very much reminds me of, of things like stories of the Dulce underground base, the Dulce report and things like that with strange hybrid creatures being kept in cages and suspended in tubes of liquid. Yeah, really sort of reminds me of that in a lot of ways. There's a third group as well. The third group seems to be a military task force, which has been operating since the 80s. This group appears to be interested in the UFO alien abduction phenomenon for information gathering purposes. This would be a logical consequence of someone or a group of people with the need to know considers alien abductions to be real. It seems to me that the leaders of this military task force believe that some alien abductions are real and that they have national security implications. It could be that the second and third group are working together because they could share their interest in genetic studies and their findings from alleged alien abductees. All right, it might be a little early in the episode for this kind of analysis, but what I'm looking at here with these three groups or these three groups with competing agendas, we have mind control experiments, including implants. We've got genetic experimentation, some underground bases. We've got tubes filled with liquid and beings inside. We've got strange creatures in cages. And we've got the military seeking intelligence and all this because deep down they know that abductions are real and a threat to national security. I'm seeing a lot of similarities in some ways with the classic late 1980s, early 1990s, O.H. Krill, John Lear sort of scenario. It's not identical. Um, the motives are different. The players are different. You're missing some of the big picture, cosmic scale, globalist conspiracy type of thing that's going on in, in those other documents. But 
all the pieces are there, if that makes sense. All the pieces are there ready to be rearranged or having been rearranged rather from the earlier scenario. Um, I'm not saying that Lammer is sort of consciously remixing things into a different theory. I'm sort of saying that it's incredibly hard to get away from the basics of the scenario. And you've got testimony coming from people under hypnosis, as, as we're going to hear some examples of very quickly here, or very soon, not very quickly. And I don't know, as, as much as the, the mind control aspect of this appeals to me as a possibly more logical, realistic explanation than straight up alien abduction, I, I do question everything that we're getting. Um, I'm not saying people didn't experience things. I'm saying that we don't necessarily know what people experienced and hypnosis is not always the best way to get it. But let's move on to the next section where he, he talks about tank and tube experiences. And in this section, he shares the story of a woman known as Michelle. Now, Lammer starts off his explanation of Michelle's experiences by saying that she had been abducted by aliens all the way back to the age of eight, being sort of taken by beings who are three to four feet tall with large heads. She, he calls them classic alien abduction experiences. But he says that what happened to her that brought her to his attention had nothing to do with alien experiences, but were consciously remembered Milab events. He says, quote, the memory gaps were investigated by a PhD hypnotherapist and MUFON consultant with the use of regressive hypnosis. This hypnotherapist does have a name. We will get to that name later and some of the things he has said later. It's, uh, it's nobody I had ever heard of. Um, when I first read this article and it just said an unnamed PhD hypnotherapist, my mind instantly went to the late Leo Sprinkle because he seems to show up everywhere um, where, this stuff, uh, where this stuff happens. But back to the story of Michelle. So Michelle and a boyfriend had a missing time slash kidnapping experience in 1970 near a campsite in Montauk, New York. Yes, that Montauk. Montauk experiment. Montauk. Um, a listener emailed me saying, did you know that this article talks about Montauk? And I um, I said, yes, I, I've never really gotten into the Montauk thing. And um, he and I corresponded a bit. And, and the upshot is I've ordered a bunch of Montauk books by um, Preston Nichols. I can't remember his name, but they're on their way. I will probably be doing a Montauk episode at some point. Um, it's a really fun story. I've just never sort of had time to get into it. So I'll make the time. You make time for things that matter, right? So back to Michelle. She recalls that both she and her boyfriend were taken by armed military personnel to the now closed Montauk base. I think Camp Hero? Is that the name? I think. After they were separated, Michelle was escorted inside an underground facility where she had several frightening experiences. She remembers being in an examination room with machines, stainless steel equipment, and a table covered in white. Michelle was placed on the table and strapped down. After a few minutes, a group of five to six people, including one female, came into the room. All of them wore medical clothes consisting of white gowns. Surgical masks covered their faces. They turned her head sideways and shaved a small portion of her head behind her right ear. She was completely conscious, but was immobilized and she could not speak. Michelle remembers that someone was writing something on the skin behind her ear. 
After this, she got an intravenous injection. She felt a prick in her arm and lost consciousness and awoke with her boyfriend, who was also kidnapped later on the beach. The next hypnosis session revealed more traumatic flashbacks of being in an isolation tank. The following experience was investigated during an emotional hypnosis regression session. Michelle has never had this experience while under hypnosis before. She recalled being in a dark place while she floated in something that felt slightly heavier than warm water. Before this experience, Michelle recalled being naked on a table. She had wires attached all over her body, and she saw a doctor in a white lab coat standing next to her. The next experience was uncovered via a deep trance regression, which probed again into the isolation tank experience. Michelle remembered once again that she was in a black enclosed area where she struggled and was afraid of drowning. The experience scared her a lot, and she wanted out of the tank. She felt that the liquid was heavier than water, was warm, and smelled of a minty odor. She was able to move her arms and legs slightly as well as her head. She felt the smooth surface of the isolation tank on her right when she stretched out her arm. She was completely isolated in the dark tank when a kind of artificially induced out-of-body experience began, or she began to hallucinate. Lammer segues from there into a discussion of liquid breathing experiments and sensory deprivation tank experiences and or experiments rather which could also be experiences and he argues that it sounds a lot like what michelle experienced he also talks about michelle's experiences another aspect of it where she described being taken by military personnel into a dark room like an office and she was raped by a reptiloid creature Lammer says, quote, I don't know what this traumatic experience means. I don't think, however, that the military worked with this reptoid creature. It could be possible that Michelle was drugged with a hallucinogen and projected the reptoid as a kind of screen memory, although she described the skin and other features of the creature quite realistically, end quote. And we will have more of that explanation of the creature's appearance later when we get to the Millab's book itself. And I do want to point out, I did not misspeak. He says reptiloid first and then reptoid twice. So, that bugged me. I went back and checked that I wasn't misspeaking. He used two different words. So I just want to make sure that you all know that I am quoting him correctly. He goes on to discuss other known experimentation that has taken place by scientists that could mimic elements of the alien abduction experience. And one citation he has is the work of Dr. Michael Persinger um, of um, Canada, Laurentian University, who, quote, demonstrated that one can artificially produce mystical experiences, out-of-body excursions, and other psychic experiences by stimulating the temporal lobes with an application of magnetic fields across the brain. So there is precedent for strange brain events being elicited in laboratory situations. So he also says there is scientific literature about liquid breathing, you know, beings in these sort of sealed liquid tanks. There's lots of information about sensory deprivation experiences. He talks about other abductees like Betty Andreessen, who reported being placed inside a tube filled with liquid. Um, so he says basically there's ample precedent for terrestrial scientific experimentation that at least reflects or mimics or is a bit like what's going on on these spaceships. 
We work towards the conclusion at this point. Um, he ter- talks a bit about virtual reality brain implants because it's 1997, and of course, we're talking about virtual reality. And he eventually gets to a conclusion. One can assume that similar secret military research projects are being conducted for biological and genetic warfare projects. If we speculate that a core of the alien abduction phenomenon is indeed real, the same people who are behind these projects would have an interest in alien biology, genetics, and mind control procedures. Since these research operations appear to be hidden behind deep black projects, only certain people with the right need to know would really know what's going on. There's also the main problem for organizations who push for congressional hearings concerning such experiments on humans, secret genetic research, and military involvement in the alien abduction phenomenon. Such projects are unacknowledged special access programs like the stealth projects were. Therefore, most of the elected politicians do not know that this kind of research is being conducted. We must keep in mind that most MILAB victims claim they have seen alien beings and human military personnel working side by side. These claims should be carefully investigated. We need more research before one definitely concludes that alien beings and military personnel are working together. Well, yes, of course we should. But it's easy to say that at the end of your two very long articles where you basically sort of set this whole thing up. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm i not calling into question his sort of motives or anything, but it just seems like you throw out all of this very kind of sinister, sexy government mind control stuff, the parallel to aliens and alien abduction experiences, the the stories of people who are not only alien abductees, but also have been subject to these mill abs. And, and then at the end of it, you say, yeah, but we should be careful, which yes, you should. But, um, and I'm not saying he presented it in a, a super lurid way or anything like that. I, I'm just saying you're letting some genies out of some bottles here, Dr. Lammer. And it might not be enough to just say, but you know, we should all be very careful before we speculate too much. So let's take a break and then we're going to come back and look at the book itself and um, talk about some of the response to the book from various quarters. We'll be back in a week fielding your questions and comments about this episode, so be sure to get those into us in the comments under this episode on the website, on social media, or through email at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. And of course, we're on social media on Twitter, on Instagram at Saucer Life, and if you go to Facebook and search for the Saucer Life podcast, you'll find us that way. Then, on our next regular episode, we're going to begin our periodic look at the story of Shoichi Harukawa, a Japanese contactee whose accounts were collected in the newsletter of Japan's branch of the Adamski Get Acquainted program. We looked at some issues of this magazine or newsletter back in um, late 2021. It's too much for one episode, but a bunch of these in a row would get sort of tedious. So I'm going to be sprinkling bits of the story of Shoichi Harukawa in your podcast feed throughout 2022. And we doubt you've missed it, but the Chizo Media Patreon has launched over at patreon.com slash Media, or if you go to chizomedia.com, you can find it there as well. And just to tell you some of the stuff that's coming up um, on the Saucer Life side of the Patreon, the bonus episode for February is me 
uh, I don't want to say torturing the saucer wife, but maybe torturing the saucer wife by making her watch and comment on both the the old found footage film the mcpherson tape as well as the 1997 or 1998 remake of the mcpherson tape that was broadcast on upn if anybody else remembers upn there is a video field trip this month as my great lakes lore co-host samantha and i um, assess the state of the paranormal and ufological bookstore selection in mid-Michigan. Spoiler, I found some really cool stuff, but I was worried for a bit that I wouldn't. Uh, There's also um, sort of post-recording wrap-ups of um, sort of extended episode material and things like that. A lot of great stuff, research blog posts, some photos. Check it out if uh, if you like, and thank you to those who are currently supporting us. You can, as always, check out past episodes of the show in your podcast app or at saucerlife.com. I, I told you where we are in the social media, but you can also send us postal mail at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. And now back to the program, the Disturbing Government Mind Control Program. <laughs> All right, now on to the book itself, finally. Although I've got to say that as a proportion of the episodes about Millabs by Helmut and Marion Lammer, I think the least big chunk of the content is going to be about the book itself. Now, partially, this is because, um, well, not partially, mostly, absolutely, it's because the structure of the book, the basic argument, most of the evidence is the same as what Lammer presented in his MUFON journal articles. Um, and he throws in his rejoinders to Victoria Alexander and his counter arguments to her critiques of his work. There's some good additions and expansions that we're going to look at. But the thing I want to mention first, and you can sort of follow along on some social media posts or at the website if you want to take a look at this, is the cover of this book is something to behold. Um, at the top, we have Millabs, colon, and then at the bottom, military mind control and alien abduction. The bottom half of the title, the subtitle, is very heavily drop-shadowed. It's like somebody figured out the drop-shadow tool on a graphic editing program and just lost their tiny mind. And the graphic is... Sort of, I think it took me a while of staring at this to finally figure out what I was looking at. But what this is is, it looks like a military helicopter pilot. Sort of got the the helmet with the the sort of heavy duty microphone curving down. Um, except it's a gray alien face wearing the, or head wearing the helmet. Except the gray alien is sort of a pinkish, peachy, white person flesh tone color, which is really, really troubling. Another thing that gets me about this cover, it's not just the design choice of the not quite a gray alien in military helicopter pilot outfit. It's the fact that the image is horribly pixelated. It is it is horribly pixelated. It is pixelated to the point where I wondered if they were going for some sort of French impressionist thing. It's weird, but I've got to say that 
I own a lot of books that were published by Illuminate Press back in the day, and they are some of my some of my absolute favorite and most treasured pieces of ufological and parapolitical content that I own. But I do have to say, with very few exceptions, um, the book covers were not uh, were not great. I think, and I don't know if there's a reason for this, but I think Ken Thomas's books with them. I always liked the. Um, the illustrations on those, but but some of them, uh, some of the Jim Keith books, the covers were just were just not great. And I think the Millabs book is the not greatest of them all. Okay, complaining about the cover aside, like I said, it's it's very much structurally, evidence wise, argument wise, the same as what was presented in those original articles in the Mufon Journal. The introduction in the Illuminate Press published United States version of the book is by underground base expert Richard Souter. And in my opinion, it's a little dull. It mostly talks about underground bases. But the original introduction from the German version was by abductee Katharina Wilson. And somehow this introduction found its way onto the internet back in 1999. And it's good. It talks about you know, a little bit about her experiences and things. And she closes it with a sort of selection well-designed to ramp up tension in readers. Millabs is a well-researched chronicle of clandestine activities that have been occurring for many decades. Helmut and Marion Lammer have been resolute in their search for the truth. From the pages of Millabs will emerge the voices of the survivors, the survivors of manipulation in its worst form. In these pages, you will learn how physiological and psychological experiments were and still are performed on the unwitting, the innocent, and the unsuspecting. Who are these victims? We are people just like you. We are your neighbors, your co-workers, your brothers and sisters, and even your children. After reading Millabs, you will never take the truth or your freedom for granted again. So this is good. It generates empathy in the reader. You know, we're not weirdos. We're not just out here looking for attention. We could be you. We could be your wife. We could be your kids. We could be your husband. We could be your best friend. We could be your mom. You could be, we could be your dad. Anybody you meet, anybody you know could be one of the people who's been victimized in this way. Lammer also talks about the, um, the work of Dan Wright, and he does this in the MUFON Journal as well. Dan Wright was the head of MUFON's Abduction Transcription Project, which sort of cataloged all kinds of accounts of alien abduction, hypnosis, and testimony and things like that. And here in sort of the opening chapter of the Millapse book, Lammer presents something from Wright about common themes in abduction cases. 1. A strong interest in human sexuality and reproduction. 2. A belief in an alien connection born in a realm ostensibly outside this conscious life. 3. A mission to perform at some point in the near future. 4. Geophysical and other dramatic changes to the Earth are shown to abductees. 5. The U.S. government's involvement and or acquiescence in alien abductions. One can see from Dan Wright's analysis that he also came across Millab cases and that he also believes that some government group is involved in the alien abduction phenomenon. In the following chapters, we will present more details and cases that provide insights into a secret human agenda regarding alleged alien abductees. So I think what Lammer 
or the Lammers rather, are doing here in presenting the findings of, of Dan Wright are kind of making the point that they are not the only ones who have seen this overlap between the military aspect and the extraterrestrial aspect um, of alien abductions or the abduction phenomenon. Let's leave the word alien out of it just right there. And that there are others who have experienced these things. And if not being endemic to the abduction phenomenon, a terrestrial military aspect is not unheard of. So one of the things that the Lammers expand upon from the MUFON articles to this book form is the story of Michelle that we learned about. We learn additional things. We learned, for example, that the PhD hypnotherapist and MUFON consultant mentioned in the article was a Dr. Kuguel, no first name given in the book. And I do not know if I'm pronouncing that name correctly. It is spelled K-O-U-G-U-E-L-L. So Kuguel is um, how I interpreted it. With my luck, it's probably something extremely straightforward like Kogel or something like that. So who is Dr. Kugwell? We don't learn much about him in the book, but I did some deep investigation by which I threw the words Kugwell and alien abduction into the Google machine. And I figured out, I learned that Dr. Kugwell is very probably in fact, not probably, is absolutely Dr. Maurice Kugwell, a hypnotherapist who founded the Brookside Center for Counseling and Hypnotherapy in Exeter, New Hampshire, which reminds me we're going to have an Exeter, New Hampshire episode at some point, not about the Brookside Center for Counseling and Hypnotherapy, about the, the UFO sighting there. So this is a bit of a digression, which, of course, we know are not a saucer life thing. But I found some interesting stuff on the Brookside Center for Counseling and Hypnotherapy website. In particular, I was drawn to the Hypnosis Frequently Asked Questions page. For example, this question jumped out at me. Is it possible to have thoughts implanted in my mind? The capacity to influence people to do something against their will exists. There is no doubt that people can be manipulated into doing things against their will and even against their systems of value and belief. Although techniques of brainwashing exist, they are not in the realm of clinical hypnosis and the ethics as practiced in clinical situations. It is known that people have done things against their will when mechanical devices have been employed. Well, that's comforting. You go in for some clinical hypnotherapy and you say, you know, is it possible to have thoughts implanted in my mind? Oh, heck yeah, we do that. You know, well, we don't, but people can. And if we put a, a little gimmick in your head, we can make you do almost anything. Of course, I would never do that. I am a uh, ethical clinician. It just seems kind of weird to talk about the mind control machines on your hypnotherapy practices website. I don't know. I didn't do a whole bunch of sort of control testing to see if this is a standard question on all hypnotherapy websites. I just assume it's not. This is followed up with another question. What is the false memory syndrome? And I love how it's the false memory syndrome. I just think that's a clever touch. The idea some people can be coaxed or fooled into remembering events that never happened has become the platform for some groups to diminish claims of childhood sexual abuse that surface sometimes during psychotherapy or hypnotherapy. 
It seems that the False Memory Syndrome Institute was created by parents facing charges of abuse by their adult offspring who had undergone therapy. These parents felt they had been falsely accused and claimed that the accusations stem from ideas or suggestions implanted in their minds by the therapists. A scenario which the previous question made very clear is probably highly possible. Um, What's false memory syndrome? Something some perverts came up with to keep out of jail? So that's me making light of it a bit. but, But still, this is a little odd to me. And, oh, speaking of things that are odd on a hypnotherapist's website, um, especially one with a a name as innocuous as the Brookside Center for Counseling and Hypnotherapy, there's a page entitled Hypnosis and Alien Abductions. Not alien abductions in sarcasm quotes, um, alien abductions, just straight up alien abductions. And his definition of the abduction phenomenon is pretty straightforward. An alien abduction is the removal of an individual or individuals without their consent from one physical location to another. During this procedure, the individual may feel helpless, paralyzed, and unable to control their wishes. The purpose of the abduction is reported as being part of a physical or psychological experiment performed by non-humans. At the conclusion of the procedure, the individuals are returned to their original location. The individuals may or may not remember their experiences. So he's not exactly hiding or concealing the fact that this is one area of his practice. He does on this page briefly discuss the case of Michelle and links to a relevant excerpt from the book Millabs. And we'll leave that there or we'll leave that here because this is a whole other rabbit hole. And maybe, I don't know, maybe on a Patreon bonus episode, we'll look at the Michelle story in depth at some point. But for now, let's look at how the Michelle story is expanded in the Millab's book version. Now, in the MUFON article version, we learned that she recalled being raped by a reptoid creature or reptiloid creature. The book version expands on the description of the creature, but thankfully doesn't go into additional lurid detail about the assault episode itself. Michelle described being escorted by military personnel into a dark office-like room where she had a traumatic encounter with a non-human being. There is almost no furniture in it. There's something that looks like a padded table. They put me on it and lay me down. Now I'm really cold. They leave the room. I can't seem to move anything but my eyes. Why am I here? I don't like this. Over to my left, something moves. It's coming closer. I can see it better. Oh, God. It's a monster. At this point, Michelle got so agitated that she almost jumped from the recliner in Dr. Kugwell's office. She got very emotional and couldn't stop shaking and crying. After Dr. Kugwell calmed her down, she remembered the following. What I see is a creature about six to seven feet tall. His ears are large and pointed at the top. His eyes are bright yellow and seem to glow. He has pointy teeth and a large wrinkle on his forehead, and he has a tail. After the description of the reptoid-like being, she remembered how she was raped by this creature. We don't know what this traumatic experience means. We don't think, however, that the military worked with this reptoid creature. It could be possible that Michelle was drugged with a hallucinogen, raped by a human, and projected the reptoid as a kind of screen memory, although she described the skin and other features of the creature quite realistically. As in the MUFON article, Lammer presents the view that the reptoid aspect of the encounter could have been induced by some sort of artificial means. He cites in particular, this time around, being dosed with LSD, and he refers to the research of a Dr. Stanislav Groth. 
He continues Michelle's story, which mirrors what appeared in the MUFON journal, and discusses the possibility that her experiences were very real, but that they were entirely at the hands of military or intelligence officials, and that the alien aspects were manufactured or somehow implanted. There are some chapters then that move into the genetic manipulation uh, material, again, very much like the MUFON journal articles, but expanded upon. The descriptions are a little more extensive. The arguments are sort of explained in a bit more detail. And we get some additional description of the kinds of equipment and experiments that abductees had noted in their um, in their hypnotic regressions and, and their accounts thing. And some of these are from Dan Wright's MUFON transcription project. One abductee observed, quote, several tubes with different bodies inside and was placed in front of a tube with a body of a tall, blonde human woman inside, end quote. And it was the tube was glass or plexiglass. And this was aboard a uh, aboard a UFO. So this is the sort of thing we're seeing. Um, we also see abductees who report having come face to face with embryonic or fetal gray aliens suspended in liquid in jars and in clear cylinders. And I just, like I said earlier, I just keep flashing back to Dulcie underground base stories and things like that. And I'm sure Lammer's argument would be that, you know, the Dulcie base story is completely tainted with all sorts of, of alien conspiracy nonsense that's accreted around it probably intentionally as disinformation. But what if the core story of it is true? There is an underground base where experimentation, genetic experimentation is taking place involving humans and aliens and that the American military is involved with it. We get a whole chapter on underground bases, which makes the uh, Richard Souter uh, introduction sort of uh, sort of smart. What's weird, to me at least, is that the underground base chapter, which is actually entitled, let me look and make sure I've got this correct here, Otherworldly Journeys and Military Underground Facilities, is only a couple pages long. But one thing really interesting is that uh, Lammer reviews the uh, the research by Dr. Thomas Bullard, um, who talked about otherworldly journeys. And Bullard sort of pulled out a pattern from some abduction accounts where there's a phase of preparation where the alien is putting the abductee into a protective environment, travel, which is the actual transit, an underground element and a landscape. The abductee sees the surface of the other world. There's often a museum like aspect to it as well. And I like this because there are parallels to a lot of contactee things we've seen. And I would argue that there is not necessarily as much of a divide between the abduction phenomenon and the contact phenomenon as we have come to know and define them and describe them over the decades. There are overlaps, and these things that Bullard explains that Lammer relates to us in this chapter are sort of emblematic of that. If you were to take some of those things, especially the otherworldly journey aspect, that's not something I would necessarily pull out of my head when I think of abductees. But once you think about it, and once you think about some of the stories that we've seen over the years, yeah, it does make uh, does make a kind of sense. An abductee named Evelyn, not her real name, it's a pseudonym, described her experience and what she saw this way. 
I can remember flying in a beautiful golden ship, and it went into a mountainside and flew under the ground into a huge cavernous room where, to my surprise, were human beings, dressed in military uniforms with machine guns slung behind their backs. I walked in a line with some other people, and we passed through an energized gate that somehow does something to your atoms. I remarked to myself, the military must have some alien technology. So very much an otherworldly, very UFO type situation, but with that military aspect again. We then move into a chapter called Toward a Controlled Society, in which we really get a lot of what was in the MUFON articles about comparing the experiences of abductees with the known limits of technology or the speculated limits of technology described in declassified documents and, like I said, a lot of speculation based on technological knowledge, theorizing, things like that, especially implants, especially the ability of other entities, earthly entities, to use various types of electromagnetic energy to generate thoughts images, experiences, things like that. Sort of the mind control melting into that virtual reality scenario type thing. There's also a chapter on what it calls military interrogations of alien abductees. But I I don't know. It doesn't really describe interrogations as much as in some cases, like the case of Katharina Wilson, almost a second life uh, to sort of is that the no secret life was the David Jacobs book. Second life was the virtual reality thing on the internet, right? But a sort of second parallel life she lived, um, sort of in a military situation or a military circumstance, which was very interesting and, and sort of suggests the fairly well-worn idea of mind control manipulation creating um, dissociative identities in people. So the book sort of ends. It doesn't have a great conclusion. Honestly, it just sort of ends. And um, with guidelines for future research, which again is is very sort of speculative as well as, you know, let's not go crazy. Let's not get the cart before the horse here. There's still a lot of actual scientific work that needs to be done. So that's kind of the book. And we're going to talk about the reactions to the book and some things like that. But I, I just want to say, if you have felt like you have missed out by not reading or owning the Millab's book. I feel I can tell you authoritatively that if you read Lammer's articles in the MUFON Journal in 1996 and 1997, you will be in quite good shape. And they're out there on the internet. I will... I will get some links up for you because they are out there. So I will make sure that you uh, that you have those. So I'll put those in the show notes or something like that. So after the book was published, actually before the book was published, there was a lot of buzz about this on various internet platforms. It was eagerly awaited with various Lammer articles being recirculated. And given that it was the late 1990s, I have to think that some of these articles might have just been typed in by hand from the, um, from the MUFON journal, which is pretty wild. And the excitement wasn't confined to alien and UFO groups. Take, for example, this post from the Usenet group alt.privacy. Content warning for some fairly racist and homophobic content. 
Mind control is a growing problem in the U.S. and can only be stopped if the general public is made aware of it. The controlled media in the U.S. will not report on such atrocities since they are part of an ongoing, non-lethal ethnic cleansing program of the U.S. government against heterosexual white U.S. citizens. Their genes were right, but had the misfortune to be deemed politically incorrect. That such outrages can be occurring without the public being aware of it is also due to the dumbing down which has occurred in our educational system as a result of affirmative action programs. Such underrepresented minority promoting programs must be fought, since the net effect of such programs is not to promote the targeted minorities, but to lower the intellectual, moral, and ethical standards of the institutions involved. Though a case can and should be made for a female quota, like in Germany and other European countries, since such systems achieve their goals without lowering the intellectual level of affected programs. Thus, it is incumbent on netizens to take the initiative on their own and become informed. And then the author segues to the press release for the forthcoming Millab's book, despite Lammer's book or the Lammer's book, sorry, not reflecting in any way the racist homophobic themes taken for granted by the poster. Um, noted social scientist going by the name BPM Mixmaster. Ridiculous and horrible stuff. So Lammer did receive some unwanted attention as a result of writing this book, and he issued a statement entitled Millab's book Ruffles Feathers during the summer of 1999. The anti-Millab group has made an attempt to connect my private research interests with my workplace. Therefore, I am informing all readers and other researchers that my research of UFO phenomenon, abductions, and Millabs is not connected with my work as a space scientist. It does not represent the opinion of my department, my director, etc., and is not supported by them. My research is private and is based on my own hypothesis, which is supported by investigative journalism. I also do not claim that the whole United States military or related intelligence agencies are involved in alien abductions, UFO research, kidnappings of abductees, examinations, etc., and I am not an anti-American. However, it is my democratic opinion that there are indications that covert human forces may be involved in the abduction phenomenon. This is only an hypothesis, and the discussion about this should not be forbidden or censored in democratic societies. If attempts continue to be made, we should remind ourselves and the anti-Milab group that we do not live in the former Soviet Union or Serbia. We live in a democratic society. It is a known, published fact that segments of the United States military intelligence agencies experimented on unwitting people during the Cold War, even though it was illegal. I do not believe that our Milab critics can guarantee or prove that such secret experiments have ended. To be fair, asking the Milab critics to prove experiments have ended is dangerously close to the logical impossibility of asking somebody to prove a negative. So I got to take off some points there. But in general, I mean, yeah, you can't really deny that, you know, horrible, horrible things have been done to people at the hands of the government. Uh, but maybe there's a reason. And that sort of feeds into the biggest and most vociferous response to Millabs, which was from Colonel John Alexander, superstar of the non-lethal weapons scene, and as we saw last time, noted world traveler. He took to the nascent interwebs in an attempt to debunk Lammer's work, and he starts with this, frankly, masterful statement that, in just a few sentences, trashes Lammer's work and plugs his own forthcoming book. Lammer has displayed both a lack of understanding of technical knowledge and the ability to competently analyze information. Unfortunately, he is not alone. This topic is quite important and is covered in some detail in my forthcoming book, Future War, Non-Lethal Weapons in 21st Century Warfare. However, 
given his current position in the Austrian Space Research Institute, this obvious lapse is very disconcerting. That sort of snide, condescending tone is going to be a staple of the John Alexander experience. And we're going to work our way through this critique here. And I should say, I am aware that he does discuss the Lammer hypothesis in his book that he mentioned. Um, I've looked at it. I've looked through that section. And he doesn't really, unless I missed it, he doesn't really make any points in there that he doesn't make in this initial critique. So in the interests of time, I'm just going to deal with this initial critique. Here's another bit. Even if this mystical and unattained technology were available, the organizational aspects are illogical. If the three-car system proposed by Lammer were used by the offenders, the logic still fails. Assuming there are a minimum of two people per car, and we know that it takes five shifts to man any given position, we are led to assume that 30 people are assigned to continuously track each millab. Of course, that doesn't count supervisors and administrative personnel. Remember the helicopters? Where did they come from? Who flew them? Who conducted the medical tests? Who maintained these yet-to-be-identified bases? The list of involved personnel goes on and on. Since it is claimed that these illegal operations have been conducted for many years, and since military personnel rotate on a frequent basis, there would have to be thousands, if not tens of thousands of people involved over time. Where are they? When you add up all of the people who say they are Milab victims, the number of people involved in this operation would be non-trivial. At a time when military strength is cut to the bone, are we to believe this mission without purpose takes precedence over other critical functions? With all of the questionable projects that have been exposed, why have we not heard from one whistleblower about Milab? The reason is because it does not exist, nor has it ever existed. The thing is, I think you could say just about any of this, about any of the many documented, proven, covert investigation, experimentation things that have gone on. People don't tend to talk, even in large systems like this. Whistleblowers are rare enough, I think, that they are easy targets for elimination because you know who they are because, oh, gosh, that guy's talking. Shut him down. Um, I don't know. It just seems like the like, there couldn't have been a conspiracy to assassinate Kennedy. Somebody would have talked. Well, Really? I don't know. I just I just don't buy it. It seems like a very sort of generic argument that trades heavily on the um, let me tell you how these things work kind of attitude when, you know, why should I believe that you're telling me the truth about the way things work? You're part of this military intelligence system, retired Colonel Alexander of the non-lethal weapons projects. I don't know. Next, there is no logical purpose in tracking the people who make these claims. They do not appear to have any significant attributes that would make them worthy of special study. There's no indication that they are extremely intelligent, nor is their physical prowess of note. No Nobel laureate or person of publicly acclaimed accomplishments has ever claimed to be a Milab. It therefore remains a mystery as to why these relatively nondescript people are reportedly chosen to be unwilling Milab participants. There are, however, many well-known medical conditions that describe these signs and symptoms. 
These observed or perceived contentions maintain that some person or group of persons is after them are indeed found amongst 10 million persons per year who are seen by clinicians who include social workers, clinical psychologists, neurologists, general practitioners, and other primary care practitioners, and sometimes by psychiatrists. The vast majority of these persons, over 90%, function very well within activities of daily life, outside of a narrow, highly circumscribed paranoid delusion, concern, or worry that while not real, these delusions are not disabling. Most common are beliefs of other entities, voices, bedroom-related visions, and hypnagogic experiences. Often, they are accompanied over time by exaggerated notions of self-importance. Clinical estimates are that over 100 million of these persons are alive today worldwide. They are found in all countries and all cultures. Generally speaking, the demography of these persons does not match that of a normal population. These observations are not new. They have been diagnosed or more likely merely observed for more than a century. It is a much more simplistic answer than the bizarre scenario being portrayed by Lammer and his supporters. Where is Occam when you need him? Well, no. They're not going to surreptitiously abduct people that everybody would notice are missing for these things. Where are the Nobel laureates in this group of millabs? Oh, shut up. Ow, th- this this really, really irks me. And then sort of goes into a, you know, you know who does have these things happen at a high rate are people with mental problems. Um, it's, it's distasteful. Um, I don't like his attitude very much at all. At least Victoria Alexander was kind of funny and humorous in her sort of dismissal of, of these things. Alexander is just... Uh, I don't know. It's just just oily and unctuous and kind of I don't I don't like him at all, but we're we're going to keep going. We're going to get through this. It cannot be denied that the system has been abused in the past and that individuals rights were violated. However, in each of the cases listed, a reason for the experiments could be made. In Tuskegee, doctors wanted to determine how syphilis would progress if left untreated. Most, but not all, participants in MKUltra were volunteers who signed statements to that effect. Forgotten in the clamor over those experiments is the grave concern that had been generated by our POWs, who showed signs of brainwashing when they returned from North Korean camps. The radiation experiments were also conducted in a time of extreme anxiety about the effects of exposure and were based on the concerns for our very national survival. I'm not making excuses or apologies for these experiments. However, in each case, the designers conducted a risk-benefits analysis and chose to proceed. The proposed Millab projects fail that simple test of common sense. There is just no reason to conduct them. However, since there is no statute of limitation on kidnapping, I also highly recommend that any person who experiences an abduction at the hands of anyone, including purported government agents, report them to multiple law enforcement agencies. That will ensure no single agency can quash the report. While immediacy would be preferred, Old cases can also be filed. Well, of course, it's regrettable that we targeted some of the most vulnerable members of our society for unspeakably inhumane treatment and experimentation, but I think most of them signed waivers of some kind, probably. Oh my gosh. And, you know, it's... I guess it's understandable that these horrible things occurred because you have to understand people in the government were kind of nervous about some scary things. So that means you have to give lots of people syphilis. 
this is this is awful and as we're going to see i'm not the only person who thinks this is awful there is there is some backlash from other people as well uh, we're almost uh, we're almost through this uh, this very dark patch of material here the millab concoction fails every known test of knowledge proof and common sense not one scintilla of concrete evidence exists to support the hypothesis Lammer's arguments fail in technology, political science, military science, government, budget, and finance, organizational sociology, and psychology or psychiatry. No one supporting the Millab hypothesis can explain why critical resources, if they existed, would be employed for this nonsense versus some issue of vital national importance. At the end of the day, all we are left with is abstruse, totally unsubstantiated conspiracy theory. But that does sell well in some circles. I enjoy the part where he's just rattling off various unrelated fields of study, saying Lammer has failed to consider all of these fields or, or, or fails in all of these ways. Well, so does your critique of him. Um, it, it's, uh, well, it's over now. So there were some critiques of Alexander's critique, and the one I want to focus on is by conspiracy writer uh, Alex Constantine. And Constantine had some interesting things to say about uh, Alexander and his critique in relation to his position and the work that he had done over the years. Mengele slurring meekly, we uh, did nothing. John Alexander is distancing himself from horrific acts of experimentation on humans and his categorical denial, originating as it does from inside the intelligence community, is a statement for the record from the big boys. But there is high-handed irony in the fact that it is the only position he can possibly take without incriminating himself. If he acknowledges facts that Lammer, many abductees, targeted political dissidents, and other categories of abuse know by direct and indirect experience to be true, then he implicates himself in aggravated human rights atrocities. Strong words. You start throwing the word Mengele around. You know, you're in it for the long haul. And he does... Um, sort of talk also about Alexander's position within the military intelligence complex um, and that his his denial is sort of, as he says, a statement for the record. But it's the only thing he can say is what Constantine is saying. And it is not necessarily an effective rebuttal of Lammer's arguments. It's more of an official refusal and a very cynical one at that. Next, Constantine takes aim at the fact that Alexander says there is, you know, not one scintilla of evidence that anything Lammer says is true. Not one scintilla? I don't know what a scintilla is, but anyone who has been subjected to a Millab experience would fume. Only a DOD prick would make a claim that sweeping to an audience that has poured over all scraps of research on non-lethal weapons technology available, particularly the EM variety. The torture of civilians goes on, and nitpicking over RF triangulation loci based on the anachronistic mainstream data available in the unclassified sector is futile and distracting. Alexander denies not only his role in, but the very existence of the atrocities because they are every bit as black as those endured by victims of fascist war crimes. Which, as we know, Alexander would probably sort of dismiss as necessary if you knew the whole story about how worried people were about everything. But Constantine sort of says this 
sort of parallel between the Milabs thing and other atrocities that have been committed by governments is kind of the whole point. But this is the issue here, isn't it? Alexander, the intelligence agencies you work for are beyond criminal. Journalist Penny Lernu reported that in 1967, the CIA dropped napalm on Guatemalan Indians because the oil companies wanted to pump the petroleum beneath their land. The natives were burned alive, and the oil companies purchased the extraction rights from puppets in the Guatemalan government at low cost. When asked about this episode, the CIA does not shrug and admit, yes, we killed those Indians for the oil. The response is, there is not one scintilla of concrete evidence to support that allegation. He's not wrong. And, and here's the thing. You can almost look at it as though, or as if the Milabs stuff is not the main event. The Milabs thing is a symptom of a systemic horribleness in the military intelligence industrial complex. Constantine finishes with um, a flourish, I guess we could call it. Alexander's denial has been circulated to some of the victims of Milab. He would appear less a Nazi, I suppose, if he refused comment, but to expose himself in Mengeleese as a liar snatching at the no-evidence straw. Well, only a representative from the criminalized intelligence services would protest too much, because any other course would expose the rot. Why waste our time? Climb back in your hole, John Alexander, and exercise your pathologies with an understanding that many of us out here on the net know you as an occultic concubine of fascist sugar daddies. Concubine of fascist sugar daddies. That is outstanding. Um, he really does go for it here. And there's a, an anger. I was going to say beneath the surface, but no, the anger is, is very much right there on top of the surface. Absolutely no question about that. It's very, um, very fascinating to see. And I should note, uh, you know, alongside Alexander's denials that anything like what Lammer talks about exists, that around the same time Lammer's book came out, Illuminate also published a book by Jim Keith, Mass Control, Engineering Human Consciousness, which identified work that Alexander was doing at the time and presenting at conferences on. And it's very much in line with some of the things Lammer discussed in his Milab's work. For a little while, I thought about um, doing an episode about John Alexander, but after doing this episode, um, just with, with this amount that I've, I've looked into this stuff, I don't want to spend any more time with John Alexander. I, I just don't feel like that's something that would be good for my uh for my mental or emotional health so to conclude this look at helmet lammers Millabs, someone on facebook after the first part of the sequence on this asked if we're sure that this is the same lammer who is a space scientist in austria and i believe alexander connecting the two jobs and the ruffled feathers press release sort of confirmed that but to be clear lammer space scientist lammer is out of the ufo abduction field Back in 2011 or so, somebody from the old UFO updates email list that was run by Errol Bruce Knapp um, got in touch with Lammer and asked his opinion about an article that he had written, which is you know one of the sort of condensed internet versions of the MUFON article. And Lammer did reply explaining his current situation. Please note that I've not been involved in this kind of private research for more than 10 years and the content of the article does not reflect my present-day opinion. 
Best wishes, Helmut Lammer. And further to that, in addition to it not being, you know, his current opinion, a few years later, Hakan Blomquist of the Archives for the Unexplained, and I butchered that name. Um, if anybody knows the fella and he hears this, tell him I'm sorry. Um, so Mr. Blomquist of the Archives for the Unexplained got in contact with Lammer inquiring about his records and whether they might be donatable. In April 2011, I wrote to Dr. Lammer asking for more data on his research. He very kindly told me that he had abandoned all research on abductions and mind control and had no further interest in the subject. I then asked if he would consider donating his research material and archive to AFU. I was quite surprised when told that his entire archive had been thrown away. Why would a scientist destroy the result of many years of research? Was the subject too sensitive? Now, I'm not saying that this is on the same level as Al Bender's we advise those engaged in saucer research to please be very careful. But it is kind of it is kind of strange. And, and people have, in various places on the internet, played the whole was he being threatened card. And I don't have any evidence of that. I don't have any evidence that, that anything untoward happened to him. I think it probably brought more attention to him than he would have liked, especially with his very sort of prestigious scientific and academic appointments that could be really irritating on a personal and professional level to deal with. Um, I think it's well established that working in the UFO field, if especially if you're not somebody who's, you know, who's decided to make a living at being in the UFO field can be very sort of arduous and stressful and you deal with a lot of interesting people. And I can imagine that he just got tired of dealing with these very interesting people. So at the end of all this, what do I think? Not that you need me to think anything. Um, I'm not here to solve the Milab question. I'm here to present this little slice of research uh, to the best of my ability. And because listener Mark asked me to and bought me the book. But I think what I come away from this thinking is that the Milabs project, much like Constantine's response to John Alexander, the Milabs project highlights the long history of government and military and intelligence chicanery. And I kind of wonder if that's a story that is best told by people who have no interest in or connection to the UFO or alien question whatsoever. Because I'm not saying this is a good thing, I'm not saying this is a virtuous thing, but anytime you connect a topic to UFOs and alien abductions and hypnotic regression, you run the risk of discrediting that topic. And some things are too serious to be mixed up with flying saucers. That's just my opinion. Um, but the book did make me think. Um, the articles, the MUFON articles in the book did make me think. I found them intriguing. And I urge you to check out those MUFON articles. And I will try to remember to put some links up there. Next time, contactees in Japan. Thank you for listening. Remember to send in your questions and comments via the usual social media or email channels. And we'll address them next week. Um, 
Our associate producer is Simpson J. Hanover III, and The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.